0: The Jodcast, with Ian Morrison, Haritina Mogasanu, Samuel Leski, Tian Besaid-Note, Bart Vlodarczyk-Sroka, Alice Humpage, Fiona Porter, and Michael Wright. The Jodcast, February 2020 edition. Hello, and welcome to The Jodcast. I'm Tian Besaid-Note, and joining me in the studio today is Bart Vlodarczyk-Sroka, there's um, a new face in the studio. Do you want to introduce yourself a little bit?
1: Hello, Tian. Hello, guys. Uh, hi, my name is Bart vodacic I'm a research master's student at Jondra Banks Centre for Astrophysics, and uh, I'm working on SETI with Professor Michael Garrett. Uh, now, in the show this time, Fiona Porter and Michael Wright interview Anais Moller about machine learning to find supernovae for cosmology, and Ian Morrison, Haritina Mogasanu, and Samuel Leska take a look at what's happening in the February night sky. But first, before all of that, here's Alice Humpage with this month's news.
2: Thanks Tian. In the news this week, the Spitzer telescope reaches its final days, the National Science Foundation releases the most detailed images of the Sun ever, and SpaceX launches 60 new Starlink satellites, with one experimentally darkened to lower the light pollution impact. First, the Spitzer Space Telescope has now reached the end of its life. The Infrared Telescope took its final set of data on the 28th of January, and was retired two days later on the 30th. The Space Telescope was launched in 2003, its mission initially supposed to last around five years, when the liquid helium cooling the system ran out. Since then, because of its lowered sensitivity, it has been unable to take measurements in the far infrared, and instead has been operating at its lowest possible wavelengths. On the 30th of January, NASA put Spitzer into save mode, where the telescope's non-essential systems are shut down. Among the telescope's main focus was an infrared survey of the Milky Way, and looking at light from the earliest stars, but it has made other notable discoveries. This includes things like the discovery of Saturn's largest ring, called the Phoebe Ring, and the first Buckyballs, nearly spherical carbon, molecules made of 60 carbons. Spitzer was also one of the telescopes involved in the discovery of the seven Trappist exoplanets. Next, the National Science Foundation's Daniel K. Inouye Solar Telescope has released its first images of the Sun. These images are in a higher resolution than ever before and show lots of details of its surface. The image shows a pattern of granules, which are convection cells, superheated plasma, rising from within the Sun. While these granules look small, they are each about the size of Texas. The new telescope will be making lots of new discoveries about space weather in efforts to better predict solar winds and flares that sometimes have an impact on the Earth. Caused by the Sun's magnetic field, the solar flares and winds can knock out communications, satellites and electricity, so it's important to know when they're coming as soon as possible. The telescope hopes to achieve an earlier warning time of 48 hours instead of the 48 minutes currently. This allows enough warning for satellites to be put into safe mode and infrastructure to be secured before the damage can be done. Lastly, SpaceX launched 60 new Starlink satellites this month. Astronomers have been raising concern over the number of satellites being launched as part of the constellation, increasing light pollution and having an impact on observations, as well as increasing the amount of space debris. There are currently around 200 Starlink satellites in orbit and by the end of the year, 1,584 of them are expected to have been launched, and a total of 12,000 are currently planned. With that many highly reflective satellites in orbit making light pollution worse, observing will be increasingly difficult. One of the new satellites has been experimentally darkened as a trial effort to help prevent them from having as big of an impact on observations. The company hasn't revealed how the darkening was done, so whether this is a full solution is unclear, as a darker satellite might make things worse in the infrared as it absorbs the heat of the sun easier. There are also concerns within SpaceX about the possible effect on the performance of the telescope. It is unknown how effective the darkening will be until the satellite reaches its destination at the end of February.
0: Thanks for that, Ellis.
1: Now, Fiona Porter and Michael Wright interview Anaïs Moller about machine learning to find supernovae for cosmology.
3: Hello, in the studio this week we have Dr Anaïs Moller. Would you please introduce yourself?
4: Yes, hello. Uh, My name is Anaïs. I am a researcher in France and I work with machine learning and supernova cosmology.
3: Okay, so we'll start off then with the supernova cosmology. What in particular are you working on with that?
4: Yeah, so cosmology, what we're trying to do is to understand what the universe is made of. So what we see around us and the stars and everything we can like observe is only around 5% of the universe. And the rest of the universe is of things that we cannot see, but we can study their effect. So what we do is to try to understand what the universe is made of and a little bit what is going to happen with the universe in the future and what happened with the past. That's what we do in cosmology. Now with supernova cosmology is that we use... Particular types of exploding stars to study how the universe is becoming bigger.
5: So there are multiple different types of supernovae, is that right? Yes. So supernovae are basically
4: stars that explode.
5: Not all stars
4: will explode, but a lot of them will. So there are two main types that we work on. One is called type 1a supernovae, and these are stars that live with another star. There are two stars together. And one star will start eating material from the other, till at one point it cannot eat anymore, and it will explode. When it explodes, it explodes always in the same way, with the same brightness almost. And that one we use for cosmology, because they can help us to uh, study distances, to measure distances. Now there are other types of exploding stars that are called core-collapse supernova, And they're usually very heavy stars that at one point cannot balance their energy budget anymore, their pressure, so they will collapse and explode. But these ones I am less interested on. the first ones which allow us to measure distances in the universe and therefore we can study how the universe is becoming bigger.
5: Could you explain to us a little bit about how you can use these to determine distances? So it's really interesting and it's really intuitive.
4: Imagine that you have two light bulbs and the light bulbs are exactly the same and you have them here in your hands and then you give it to two people and tell them run away in the night and I'll close my eyes and when I open, one will be further away than the other one. And the one that I receive less light and is really intuitive is the one that is further away. But this is all true if the light bulbs are exactly the same. So in the universe, the stars, and you have seen it in the night sky, shine differently. They have different temperatures, they have different components. So you cannot use them as the same light bulb. But Type 1a supernova, because they explode almost exactly the same, can be used for this measurement. And that's what we do, we search for this supernova. When we find it, we see how faint we see them, and then we can compute the distances.
3: So now, once you have those distances then, does that help you then map out how the universe expands?
4: Yes, so imagine that we live not in the three-dimensional universe, but like in a tablecloth, okay? And this is an elastic tablecloth, two dimensions, or in a balloon, which also can be stretched. So the idea of the cosmic expansion is that the tablecloth or that fabric is becoming larger. So if you have two points in that tablecloth that you have drawn with a marker and you stretch it, the, the points don't do anything, but the distance between them increase. So that's what we do. We try to measure that distance and also the velocity of that expansion because we cannot wait enough to see in thousands of years how much the fabric has moved.
5: Because this expansion has been going on since the universe began and is expected to go on as long as the universe exists.
4: Well, that's a challenge. We're trying to measure very well what is producing this expansion to see if it will continue with the same rate in the same way in the future. But what we know is that the universe has been expanding in an accelerated fashion since uh, a while already. And this is what uh, the Nobel Prize winners in 2004 or five actually measure that the universe, we thought that it will be expanding but each time slower, so it's the disaccelerated expansion, probably called. But what they measure is that it was actually expanding every time faster. And to explain this, we didn't have something to explain it, and with the rules of physics, we postulate that that we have this dark energy that is making
5: this universe
4: stretch out. And that's uh, the accelerated cosmic expansion
5: that I'm trying to measure now. And the reason we can't measure this dark energy directly is, of course, because it's dark. Like dark matter, it's a substance which doesn't emit light, which is obviously how we detect pretty much all astronomical sources, which aren't from gravitational waves. So where does machine learning come into this?
4: Oh, that's very interesting. So we take a lot of images with telescopes around the world to measure this supernova. But we don't have infinite amount of time in telescopes, because there are only a handful of telescopes that can point this to the sky and observe exactly the same thing. So machine learning is a way to actually optimize resources. Basically, we have all these images, this beautiful data, we don't have ways of actually using it completely. So machine learning is a way of actually finding those events. For example, if you have the famous needle in the haystack, how do you find that needle? Machine learning can help you actually finding the shape or finding that particular object that doesn't bend or something like that. And that's the idea of machine learning. But instead of finding a needle, we're finding things in images, or in this case, we're finding supernova in the images of telescopes.
5: So when you're looking for a supernova with a telescope, let's say you've got before and just as the supernova is exploding, what are you going to be, what's, what's the difference? What are you going to see?
4: Imagine that you have a beautiful image of a galaxy a year ago, okay? And now you have a supernova on it. It's just one single star within millions of stars of that galaxy that is exploding. But it's really, really bright. It's so bright that if you make the difference between the new image and the old image, you will see a blob or a circular source. And that's what we are searching for, things that are changing in the sky. Now, once you have that, you already have what we call transients, mm. things that are changing with time. But this can be supernova, but can be other stuff. And machine learning can help you not only to find these transients, but it can also help you to identify
5: which type of
4: transient it is.
5: So part of the problem with supernovae is that if you're looking for them by eye, you can only see them as they happen. You just have to be lucky to an extent to start seeing them happen. Is this something machine learning can help with to help us spot what's going to be a promising supernova?
4: So... By taking images and doing the difference of images, we can find the transients. Now, which type of supernova we have is another question. And this is something I'm working a lot on, and today we have been discussing in the university, is how do we find which are the type 1As against which are the core collapse or the other objects that we have in the sky, which are much more than what we have spoken of. And machine learning can help us because we can get this evolution of the brightness of the explosion with time, and see the different ways that that rises and falls, or the colors it emits, and to identify which type of supernova we have. Now, traditionally, this is done using spectrographs. So spectrographs, what they do, is that they take this image of this exploding star, and they split the whole rainbow of colors, or at least a big portion of it. And that will tell you exactly which supernova type you have. However, this time is really expensive and very hard to get, and you only have a very small window to get that spectrum. So what we do is that we use machine learning and just like the colors we observe in these images that we have, and we classify which type of supernova we have. And this is something we have been really working with machine learning because it's so fast and so powerful. And it's such a beautiful thing to use a new technology into science.
5: So when these are classified manually, it's a matter of having a look at these these spectra where lights are different strengths based on what the star was made of. Is that right?
4: Yes, so you get what we call emission and absorption lines. So emission is the elements that are actually really bright and you can see them in a certain wavelength and absorption is something that has absorbed the light. And you can see that and it's, that's really precise. For example, Type 1A supernova have a feature that is a silicon uh, feature, so you search for it. But when you have only the images that have not that feature but have only like broad colors, then you're not searching for silicon anymore, you're searching something else, which is linked,
5: but it's not exactly the same, and that's where machine learning can help. When you're working with machine learning, then, what are you looking for? Oh,
4: I think one of the biggest challenges that we have right now in astronomy is that we have so much data, and it's so hard to figure out what are interesting objects. So I'm working now with a project that is LSSD, which is a large synoptic survey telescope, It will be a telescope that will be looking at the southern sky for 10 years. 10 years mapping the southern skies, which is a humongous amount of area and also possible things are interesting. So when I'm working with machine learning, I'm looking for speed, I'm looking for accuracy, but I'm also looking to try to figure out if what the machine learning is giving me as a possible type 1A is real 1A or not. So a high accuracy, high purity of my type supernova sample.
3: You say you're using machine learning as this new technology to do that. How would we have done that before then, finding okay. these promising candidates?
4: This is a good question. Before, we would have to get the spectra and see all these absorption and emission features. If you don't have the spectra, just looking from the light curves, sometimes it's really hard to disentangle it. So some people, what they have done is that they take, for example, how bright it was at one point, and see which colors it shine, and say, this is possible at 1A. But these methods are not really, really accurate. And also, uh, when you do cosmology, you want to be sure that what you have. Now, the other problem was that if you do this method by, it's not by hand, but it's a little bit more involved by the person, it's not fast enough. And we want something really fast, because LSST is expected to have 10,000 possible things changing in the sky every 30 seconds. Imagine this not just one night, but every night in a week and every week in a month, every month in a year for 10 years. So this is a huge quantity of data we need to go through.
5: Yeah, that's something which you just physically cannot put on side discs anymore. I mean, there's only so many... PhD students you can get to do that for you, Rick. Right?
2: <laughs> exactly. And we want
4: the PhD students to do more interesting things than just looking and <laughs> figuring out what it is. We want that they use this sample and have fun and learn new things about the universe.
5: Of uh, curiosity, how fast can your current classifier uh, identify a supernova?
4: So once the model is trained, we can do 2,000 Likers every second, which Likers is just the evolution of flux against time. So that's a lot of possible supernovas to be classified. Mm. Now, we're working to make it even faster. So it's something interesting to look how far we can push this type of method.
5: Yeah, that's already sounding very promising, because 2,000 per second compared with a possible 10,000 per 30 seconds? Yeah. Those are promising numbers. And so hopefully that's something we will be able to handle with technology rather than... Poor beleaguered PhD students
4: exactly and it's not only supernova cosmology that is interested on in this people that are doing like radio astronomy that have so much data in their hands can ha- take out these machine learning methods and use it for their own science and find interesting things
3: you've talked about how fast it is but I suppose the next thing then is how accurate is this the method you're using at finding supernova.
4: So, we need it to be pretty accurate, because we want to be sure that our sample is good. So, our estimations using simulations can go up to 99% accuracy, which is pretty good. Uh, And if you put a looser cut, you can go to 95 or something like that. So, it's a pretty good accuracy, I think. And it's giving us more confidence to use the supernova classified with machine learning for um, physics.
5: So I do a bit of machine learning myself and one of the big concerns for us are false positives and false negatives. Where a false positive is, for our listeners, when your classifier says an object is there and it isn't, whereas a false negative is when it says an object isn't there and it is. So from your talk you mentioned that one of these is a bit more important to you than the other I believe.
4: Yes, so We care not losing too many supernova, but for us it's more important that the ones we get are true ones. So for us, if we lose a couple of them, it's okay. But we want to be sure that if we find 2,000 type 1a supernova with machine learning, most of them, hopefully all of them, will be type 1a. If we lose a couple hundred, it's okay. We we can deal with it.
5: So essentially, you can afford to lose some as long as the ones you've got are very, very accurate in their classification. Yeah.
4: Yes, and we're also trying to figure out if we do the, the opposite, actually, to try to allow more events to be in our sample, how much that will change the physics results that we have. And that's what we call a systematic study. It's trying to figure out how bad can it get as well. <laughs> and this is a really important part of the science we do trying to bend the boundaries to see how far the physics that we measure will change.
3: If I'm getting this right then, by testing how your results change the physics that you get out of them, does that mean that if your classification is throwing up a few wrong answers, but that doesn't change the physics much, that's a good thing? Exactly.
4: So imagine that you're measuring, I don't know, something falling on Earth, okay? And you have uh, different objects that you're throwing around to measure the, the gravity pull, And you see a small difference when there is a, a little bit of wind or something like that. If it doesn't change the reality of the measurement, the, the core of the measurement, that's a good thing. Because then you're robust in your analysis.
3: So one of the things that you mentioned earlier then was the experiment you were looking at getting this data for, the LSS. I think first it would be a sort of useful thing if you gave a brief overview of what that experiment is.
4: Yes, of course. So right now we're applying the methods that I'm developing to the Dark Energy Survey, which is an experiment that we already finished taking data. So we cannot do anything in the future. The data is there. But uh, in the next decade, we will have a huge experiment that is the LSST. And this is the one I was telling you that is the 10,000 alerts every 30 seconds of possible things changing in the sky. And this is a massive experiment that will be around the world, and we want to take advantage of all that data. Now, LSST has many things that we can change still. It's not like uh, we are ready to the data, we're preparing for it. So part of the job that we're doing is to figure out the best ways to deal when the data comes in. So one of the projects I'm working on is called a broker. So a broker basically takes all these alerts, possible things that are changing in the sky, and we'll try to figure out which alerts are interesting for a science. So this can be things like the kilonova, or this can be active galactic Mm -hmm. nuclei shining their way in the optical spectrum, or this can be supernova, which is my favorite topic of course. Also you can have like asteroids and things closer to us. So the broker, we have been proposing a broker in France to actually try to disentangle the interesting things for the things that are not that interesting. And what's pretty exciting is that we have the room to ask really tough questions like what could be the best approach and what technology do you use? How do you make this technology trustful for the next decade? Because this is an experiment that will last 10 years. So this is a humongous amount of time. So much time that most of us cannot think what we were doing 10 years ago. Imagine that thinking about, like, at the end of the experiment, oh, how do we select this object? How this supernova came into this sample? But it already happened 10 years ago. So this is part of a, a big project that we have. And we also want that the technology is, like, the state of the art. Like, for example, we are working on the cloud, which is the new thing that people are talking about. How can we host the processing, not in a computer, in my desktop, but using it, like, as a global network?
5: Yeah, I can imagine it would be really inconvenient to be going through your data and thinking, oh, that would have been excellent to get a little bit more on. And it happened eight years ago.
4: <laughs> exactly. So we need to learn about this and be prepared. And um, The universe is like, imagine that you arrive to a new island in the middle of nowhere that nobody else has been there. There may be new animals, new plants and stuff like that we have never heard about. It's the same with the universe. By using LSST, which is now called the Vera Rubin Telescope, actually, uh, to honour a very important scientist, Vera Rubin, this telescope will allow us to see further away that we have ever been able in the southern sky. And this will give us a lot of new things that we haven't seen yet. And we need to be prepared that this can happen. There will be stuff that we don't know.
3: So, okay, that's what you're working on now, then. So finish off then what brought you to Manchester then?
4: Oh Which... so in Manchester I actually it's a it's a funny story I think by meeting people that do different science but we're using the same methods or asking the same questions we can build a network and share our knowledge mm-hmm. and during a conference that was earlier this year I met a researcher from Manchester that invited me to come and chat with you and learn a little bit of what you're doing and Share a little bit of what we have learned from what we have done with
5: Supernova, because this sort of machine learning application is, as you've said earlier, very, very broadly useful. When it comes to uh, when it comes to upcoming surveys, we've got some which are be going to be producing data at absolutely ridiculous rates, to the extent that we can't rely on previous methods of classification, which, for quite a lot of sources, was just astronomers going and having a look at them. We do have some citizen science projects. Uh, for example, you could look at Galaxy Zoo for the optical galaxies and Radio Galaxy Zoo for, well, guess. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but after a point, even they aren't going to be keeping up. So these surveys are absolutely wonderful for data. We're going to be able to learn so much from them. But in order to get anything useful out of them, we need to know what we're looking at.
4: Yes, and you mentioned citizen science projects. And in Supernova, we have been using these for a while. We actually, when I was in Australia in my previous job, we used the portal Universe and share a little bit the images of the telescopes with citizen scientists that help us do science with it. But LSST and the Very Rubin Telescope has a component as well of sharing data around the world and helping other people collaborate and see what we're doing with science.
5: Oh, is that right? What sort of things can, for example, our listeners get up to to help then?
4: Yeah, so absolutely. There is a webpage called the Zooniverse that has a lot of projects, like you said, the Galaxy Zoo or Radio Galaxy Zoo. But supernova-wise, there is a couple of projects. I cannot recall all of them right now, but I'm sure if you enter into the webpage, you can find somewhere that you can help out. And in most cases, if you find a supernova, you are actually uh, informed which type of supernova it was, and sometimes you're even co-authoring some of the... Telegrams that we do. Like, we did this for the SkyMapper telescope in Stargazing Live a couple of years ago, and the people, the first people that helped us identify a supernova, actually got co author in one of the astronomer telegrams.
5: Ooh, so if you're listening to this and you're really desperate to be on a supernova paper, here's your chance.
4: <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I'm pretty sure you can find a lot of interesting stuff in the Suniverse and see a little bit the real data we work with. Because sometimes we see in the journals these beautiful images with colors, perfect resolution, like the perfect image. But most of the time, those images are not the ones that we look every day. And I think it's something super interesting to share. What type of images are we getting our information from? And learn about that. Okay.
3: Thank you. It's been wonderful to have
4: you here. Thank you for having me. It has been a wonderful stay here in Manchester.
1: Thanks for that, Fiona and Michael. Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other bits we can't fit in anywhere else. The odds and ends.
0: Right. I had one little piece of news that I wanted to share. It's about a paper that came out uh, just earlier this month in monthly notices. And it announced the discovery of a fast radio burst called FRB-191108 with the Westerbork Synthesis Radio Telescope Array. The detection was made using the apertif Phase Array feed, which is a kind of receiver that they place at the dish's focus, uh, and it basically allows them to place 30 beams on sky at once instead of just the usual one. Uh, And one of the benefits of that is that it allows you to do some really cool tricks for localizing the source. Uh, So the idea is that based on how bright the 4B appears in the different beams at different positions, You can really narrowly confine where in the sky it's coming from to within a few arc seconds. In this case they found that the FRB emission passed very closely by the local group Galaxy M33, which is also called Triangulum. Uh, In fact the FRB came within 18 kiloparsecs of its center Uh, which is on astronomical scales really quite close indeed. So it passed through the so-called circumgalactic material of Triangulum. So to give an idea of the scales involved, the circumgalactic halo of M33 is about 75 kiloparsecs. So it's passed uh, right through that. Uh, And it also passed right through Mm. the galactic halo of M31, which is also called the Andromeda Galaxy. Now, one of the more interesting aspects of this b is the amount of Faraday rotation that was detected. Without getting into too much detail, as light traverses a magnetized plasma, its plane of polarization rotates slowly, and the stronger the magnetic field, the more the rotation. That means that if you can measure how the light was twisted, it gives you an idea of the strength of the magnetic fields that it encountered on its journey to the Earth. The Faraday rotation measured for FOB 191108 was relatively high, which means that its signal must have been interfered with by some strong magnetic fields somewhere along its path. Now, one of the big problems with looking at Faraday rotation is determining what proportion of that rotation occurred where on the journey whether most of it was from the intergalactic medium or from the host galaxy. But in this case, there are a bunch of objects passing nearby the galaxies so that they could give us a hint about that. Uh, Looking at the Faraday rotations of the other sources within a few degrees of M31 and M33 showed that the galaxies can't account for such a large proportion of it. Uh, in fact, the FOB's Faraday rotation was an order of magnitude larger than any other source in that region of the sky, and it was also of the opposite sign. This must mean that the strong magnetic fields must exist somewhere closer to the FOB's host galaxy. That suggests that there is a quite dense magnetoionic environment nearby the FOB's host galaxy, which certain models predict to be required to create FOBs. The FOBs that have been localised to a host galaxy so far seem to exist in a range of environments. Some have very little Faraday rotation, but several appear to pass through regions of really highly magnetised plasma. One repeating FRB even shows significant variation in Faraday rotation over month-to-year timescales. So there's a suspicion uh, amongst some FOB scientists that FOBs may represent several different source classes with different origins. And a highly magnetized environment is, for instance, in line with one of the more popular progenitor theories, namely extragalactic magnetar outbursts. On the other hand, those models also predict that the Faraday rotation should die down as the magneto ages, uh, which might also explain those FOBs that exhibit little to no Faraday rotation. So the long and short of it is that these theories are really up in the air, but this gives us a, a really nice new data point to enter into that equation.
1: So I'm trying to process all yeah. the information that you've just gone over yeah. from somebody that's never actually been exposed to the fast radio bursts and right. that's scientific li- li- literature. Sure. So I'm trying to think of some questions that uh, that I might have or that the average listener might have that I have that you've not already answered, I guess, with this. So, so you mentioned that for the FRBs that we can localize a host yeah. galaxy for galaxy for it tells us a lot about the local environment. Yep. Now. Has this been the case with this one that has been discovered uh, in 1911-08?
0: Yeah, so for this one in particular, there hasn't been a persistent counterpart discovered. So in other words, they can pinpoint where on the sky it is, but that doesn't. There's no galaxy that it can be tied to.
1: Right. So you mentioned it was to six arc seconds. Or, uh, um...
0: Yeah. So in this case, it was to within a few uh, arc seconds.
1: So you mentioned just in the last bit of what you were talking about, about the various the differences between the fast radio burst. Do you think that there are any other characteristics that might distinguish between the sources or types of yeah. these outbursts?
0: Yeah so one of the big divisions among the F4B population is that some of them have been seen to repeat and other ones have been once off up to now uh, only about 10 to 20 repeating F4Bs have been discovered which is a really relatively small proportion of the total F4Bs that have been found um and there's kind of a division in the community between people who think that Maybe all FRBs are repeating, and we only see some of those pulses. Uh, or maybe indeed there they are two different classes, and some are cataclysmic. They only happen once, uh, and some are repeating. Typically, a, a cataclysmic scenario would be associated with something like a, a supernova, you know, a once-off explosion that uh, re- releases a high amount of energy. But if you have a repeating FRB, uh, you really need some sort of a compact object that is consistently powering uh, those bursts. Naturally, yeah. So um, in that case, one of the, the, the kind of obvious candidate there is some neutron star system. Um, so magnetized is one that I mentioned, which is where you have a extremely highly magnetised neutron so, star. So to my
1: understanding, in this case, it would sort of boil down to you'll get two distinct types and sources of, do we have enough information at present to be able to make a conclusion like that? Or is that something Uh. that future research will be working towards?
0: Yeah, so that's the research as it is at the moment is trying to establish whether it's possible that there is only one population of FRBs. In other words, is it statistically viable that all FRBs are repeating, that we're just not seeing all of the pulses? How extensive is the variation between FRBs of a single source type? Even within um, repeating FOBs and within single FOBs, they really do differ quite a bit in the properties. So one of the properties that they differ in is the dispersion measure, which is um, something that tells you how much the signal has been smeared out. Uh, in you know, different frequencies have been smeared out by the medium in between us and the source, and some have really high dispersion measures, and some quite low ones, and if you, if you take into account the dispersion due to the interstellar medium and the intergalactic medium, that distinction remains. There is still a big difference, which mean, would mean that that distinction, that difference would be in the host environment. So some would have really dense plasmas surrounding them, while others would have more or less dense plasmas surrounding them. Causing less dispersion, and another thing. Um, so that the first uh, repeating fob was that was found was this fob twelve eleven o two, and it was because it was the first um, repeating one. It was also the first to be localised to a host galaxy, and that host galaxy was this kind of peculiar low metallicity dwarf galaxy kind of expected maybe once we localize other FRBs, they would exist in similar galaxies. But of the few that we've localized so far, that doesn't seem to be c- the case, and they seem to exist in all sorts of environments. Um, so at this stage, it, it's really a matter of discussion whether any one theory could account for all of these things, or if they are in- intrinsically distinct.
1: Well, thank you for that, John. I think that has definitely explained all my questions adequately. And uh, now, here's Ian Morrison with
6: this month's Night Sky. The Night Sky for February 2020. Well, as darkness falls, the lovely region of the heavens, including the constellations of Orion the Hunter, Taurus the Bull, and Gemini the Heavenly Twins, is beginning to move over towards the southwest. In Taurus, we have the lovely pair of open clusters, the Hyades and the Pleiades. But in fact, the brightest star that you see towards the Hyades is Aldebaran, which is only about halfway between us and then. It's a, it's a red giant star. Orion is a wonderful constellation, and I've actually put a picture of it up on the night sky page this month, just search for night sky Jodrell. And it shows in fact five nebulae, as well as the stars we all know. And the exciting thing perhaps, is that whereas in that image, which I took actually probably in late November, Betelgeuse is obviously much brighter than Bellatrix, which is the top right-hand star of Orion, it's now almost equally the same brightness. So it's dimmed by getting on for a magnitude, which is quite amazing. No one knows if that's perhaps the start of it beginning to become a supernovae. We shall have to wait and find out. Down to the lower left of Orion you just take the three stars of Orion's belt, follow downwards you come to the brightest star in the northern hemisphere, called Sirius in Canis Major. Up to the left of that is Procyon, one of only really two obvious stars in Canis Minor, and above them of course we've got Castor and Pollux in Germany. As the evening moves on towards midnight, so Cancer, a very, very faint constellation with a lovely little open cluster called the Beehive Cluster, or Pricepi, that moves over, and that is between Gemini and Leo, which you'll see with its brightest star, Regulus. So quite a lot to look for, and uh, I hope you enjoy observing these wonderful winter constellations for the next month. Well, what about the planets? Jupiter. Well, as February begins, it rises more than ninety minutes before the sun, shining at a magnitude of minus one point nine. During the month, it brightens to magnitude minus two, whilst its angular size increases slightly from thirty-two point five to thirty-four point one arc seconds. You'll need a low southeastern horizon to spot it, and sadly, due to the amount of the atmosphere through which we're looking, our views of the giant planet and its Galilean moons will be somewhat hindered. Well, Saturn. Well, Saturn passed directly behind the sun on the 13th of January, and as February begins, will rise less than one hour before the sun. Then equipped with binoculars and a very low southeastern horizon, it might be glimpsed at magnitude plus 0.58 in the pre-dawn sky. But please, of course, do not use binoculars after the sun has risen. As the month progresses its magnitude actually reduces very slightly to plus 0.66 as its angular size increases from 15.1 to 15.5 arc seconds Now Saturn crosses the ecliptic which is the path of the sun across the heavens in a southerly direction on the 13th that's just 13 days before Jupiter reaches that point and at the same time on the 1st of February a bit later Mars in fact is rising across the ecliptic As we'll see later, there's a lovely alignment of them along the ecliptic later this month. Mercury passed in front of the Sun, that's called Superior Conjunction, on the 10th of January, and during February comes to its greatest elongation east, some 18.2 degrees in angle from the Sun. It starts the month at magnitude minus 1 and dims to magnitude plus 0.2 by the 14th, and will then soon be lost in the Sun's glare. From the 1st to the 14th, its angular size increases from 5.6 to 8.1 arc seconds, But at the same time, its phase, which is the percentage of its disk that's illuminated, falls from 85% to just 32%. That obviously gives rise to the falling magnitude. On the 1st of the month, it will set about 70 minutes after the sun and will have an elevation low in the west-southwest of about 9 degrees. This will increase until the 10th before it begins to fall back towards the sun. Binoculars may well be needed to spot it, but again, please don't use them until the sun has set. Well, Mars can be seen towards the southeast in the pre-dawn sky at the start of the month. It then rises some three hours before the sun and will be seen best at about 7 a.m. at an elevation of eight degrees. It will have a magnitude of plus 1.4 and a 4.3 arc second salmon pink disc. By month's end, it will be seen further round towards the south before dawn, and its magnitude will increase slightly to plus 1.1. Its angular size will have increased to 5.5 arc seconds. But unless you've got access to the Hubble Space Telescope, you won't see any markings on the surface. It lies along the ecliptic, moving eastwards above the teapot of Sagittarius, and will lie just above the lid on the 24th. Finally, Venus. Well, Venus is now dominating the southwestern twilight sky and appears higher each night, climbing from about 29 degrees above the horizon at the start of the month to more than 38 degrees by its end. Its angular size increases from 15.3 to 18.6 arc seconds, but at the same time, its phase decreases from 73% to 63%, and so the brightness only increases very slightly from minus 4.1 to minus 4.3 magnitudes. Well, what about the highlights? Well, it's still a good month to find M31, the Andromeda galaxy, and perhaps around new moon, M33 in Triangulum. And on the night sky page, just search night sky Jodrell, there are two ways of finding it shown on a chart. On the 3rd of February, the moon lies between the Hyades and the Pleiades cluster. So it's a waxing moon moving towards full lying somewhat over to the right of the Hyades Cluster. After sunset, on the 7th of February, Venus lies almost directly above Mercury. So low in the southwest, Venus will not be missed, it's so bright. But to spot Mercury which lies down to its lower right, a low horizon just south of west, and perhaps binoculars will be needed. But again, please don't use them until the sun has set. If you're up about 7am on the morning of the 18th of February, you might be able to spot, if it's clear, a very thin crescent moon lying just to the right of Mars. That could be a very nice photo opportunity. I'll hope it's clear. On the 27th of February, after sunset, a very thin crescent moon lies down to the lower left of Venus. You'll need a low horizon towards the west. And if you're lucky and it's clear, you should spot a very thin crescent moon lying down, as I said, to its lower left. On the 29th of February, before dawn, there's a line-up of Saturn, Jupiter and Mars along the ecliptic, around 6.30 a.m. would be about the best time to look for it. Again, you'll need a low horizon towards the southeast, if you're going to actually see Saturn, which will only lie a little way above the horizon. I usually include something to observe on the Moon, and this month, on the 1st of February and the 14th of February, the Hyginus rill is near the terminator, so making it easier to see. For some time, a debate raged as whether craters on the Moon were caused by impacts or volcanic activity. We now know that virtually all were caused by impact, but it's thought the Hyginus crater that lies at the centre of the Hyginus rill may well be volcanic in origin. It's an 11-kilometre-wide rimless pit in contrast to impact craters which have raised rings. And its close association with the of the same name, associates it with internal lunar events. It can be quite easily seen as it's surrounded by dark material. It's thought that an explosive release of dust and gas created a vacant space below so that the overlying surface collapsed into it, forming this rather unique crater. Well, we've still got some quite long nights I hope we get some clear nights as well. Good hunting.
0: Thanks for that Ian. And for our southern hemisphere listeners, here's Hartina Mogasanu and Samuel Leski with the night sky where you are.
7: Star Safari
8: Star
0: Safari Star,
8: Star Safari.
7: Star Safari.
9: Welcome to a new decade of astronomy, discovery, and fun. I'm Haritina Mogoshanu,
10: and I'm Samuel Liskey.
9: And together we are Milky Way Way Kiwis. Kiwis. We have today a very special guest.
8: My name is Peter Detterline. I'm from the United States and I love looking at the southern sky. So, if you want to find out what's happening in the southern sky, this is the podcast to check. Thank
9: you, Peter.
10: And we can confirm that for those who believe in the flat earth, that Peter did not fall off the earth in coming to New Zealand.
9: <laughs> but he came here on an airplane. That's right. We've been looking at the night sky over the last two days and we did catch a little bit of a glimpse of the night sky. So what do you think of the southern night sky, Peter?
8: I love the southern night sky. And I know coming from the north... The thing we always want to talk about are the Magellanic Clouds because they're so different and so neat and we don't have anything like them in the north. And then when you get down here, you forget about them because you're just blown away by the Milky Way. (laughs) And that is just spectacular. Now at this time of year, the center of the Milky Way, of course, being directly overhead is just mind-blowing, but that's not at this time of year. But I will say, after looking and examining the entire Milky Way, I still think my favorite part has to be from Alphardus of Centauri out to Eta Carini, including Crux. It is spectacular.
10: There's so much stuff in that area.
8: It rivals our Cygnus in the north, that part of the arm, and it is just amazing. And this is a good year and a good time of year to go out and start to see that.
7: Star Safari.
10: Oh yeah, well, February, it's starting to get quite nice and high in the sky at a reasonable time too so you don't have to stay up to 11 o'clock when it's properly dark. In February, the sun sort of goes down like half past eight obviously later towards the uh, end of the month um, which means by sort of 9 9.30 you can get a pretty good get dark sky and you can take in all those wonderful sights between the Southern Cross the False Cross Diamond Cross all that area there it's really really amazing
9: of course now in the Southern Hemisphere summertime so we have the shortest nights and we've been suffering from it because it got dark
10: almost at nine o'clock in January yeah it got dark just about time to get up in the morning again
9: so we, we re- really <laughs> We had like maybe just three hours of observing.
10: Yeah, really
8: good dark sky observing. Yeah. Three hours. Well worth it. You should mm-hmm. come
9: back in July.
8: That's the best time to see that Milky Way high overhead. That's right, <laughs> yeah. But
10: there's lots to see in February and other times of the year down here too. Well, of course, this in February, we get into the sensationalist season of really big full moons. So, And you know how every year they come up with quite amazing names for full moons, like Blue Blood Wolf Moon or whatever? <laughs> I've decided this year for the February uh, full moon, I think we should really go out on a limb and we should call it the February full moon.
9: That is amazing. That is very astronomical of
8: you. Yeah. I've never heard of that one. No. Well, what do you reckon it'll catch on? We have the micro moons and
10: super moons. A February full moon. Yeah. That might catch on. That's a great idea. We could give it a go. I mean, I'm putting it out there to (laughs) see what people reckon.
9: (laughs) 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 So we're waiting. We're looking forward to hearing your comments on Facebook.
10: (laughs) Yeah. Do you think the February full moon should be called the February full moon?
9: (laughs) (laughs) Where else is in the sky?
10: Well, to be fair, actually, the February full moon is at about 360,000 uh, kilometres. So it is a little bit closer than normal, and it, but not as close as it is the following month where it's at about 354,000 kilometres. So uh, it is that time of year when the, the full moon looks a little bit brighter than normal. Um, so we start getting into that. From a planet point of view, not a whole lot's going on in February, unless you're willing to stay up really late or get up really early in the morning. And then you'll see... Uh, Saturn, Jupiter and Mars um, from about 4 o'clock. They'll be a reasonable height to have a look at, especially towards the end of the month. Uh, and earlier in the month, of course, you can ob- observe Mars. And we all miss Mars because we haven't seen Mars for a long time. Yeah, we miss Mars a lot. And there's an opposition of Mars coming up this year, which will be... But we're still cool. graced with Venus in the evening sky. Ah, oh, true, but we see that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, one that always gets, seems to get forgotten is Mercury. So maybe in, maybe in February we'll uh, try and see Mercury. I don't know, we will see Mercury. That would be fantastic.
8: (laughs) (laughs) Always enjoy looking at Mercury. Nothing like seeing the smallest planet. I think one of the uh, interesting things in the sky right now, and this is for the northern hemisphere or the southern, and one of the beautiful things about astronomy is it changes. And one of the beautiful things about astronomy is it doesn't change. You can always go out and see the same constellations, but nothing ever really stays the same. And there's nothing better than that than Orion the Hunter right now. Oh, yeah.
11: Mm.
8: Now, in the Northern Hemisphere, Orion glides across the sky with his feet to the horizon. And here he's got his head pointed down and kind of staring at the ground as he moves. But that star that marks his foot is the bright star Rigel. Beautiful blue star, which means foot. And when you get to Betelgeuse, the star that marks his shoulder, meaning the armpit of the giant, beautiful red star out there, they kind of rival each other in brightness. Rigel's usually a little bit brighter. But this January has been absolutely amazing in that Betelgeuse has gotten fainter. Nothing odd about that, except it's gotten really faint. Much, much fainter than has been really expected. And right now we're wondering... How faint can it really go? So if you want to have a, some fun with Orion, take a look at Betelgeuse and Rigel, the two bright stars, one marking his arm, one marking his foot, and compare them up and see how faint Betelgeuse really is. Look at Betelgeuse compared to the belt stars of Orion. Is it going to be fainter than the belt stars? Look at the other star that marks Orion's foot, seth and see if it's fainter than that because right now it's getting very very close to that and that is really phenomenal we don't see beetlejuice this faint so in february the big question is will it continue to get fainter or will it start to get brighter again and that'll be a really cool thing to check so that's something you can do on the next clear night
10: so peter with orion's shoulder beetlejuice right Mm-hmm. Yeah. and potentially losing, Orion losing his shoulder. So being this uh, big chap with a big sword who's pointing at the ground, well, we have to think about a different story for Orion.
8: Well, that's going to be tough. If he loses that shoulder, I mean, he's holding the club with that shoulder, so the club's got to fall somewhere, right? Mm. Well, that could be a problem. I mean, I don't know who's going to be the problem. And for you guys, it's facing the ground. Yeah. Yeah, it's falling directly. Now, in the northern hemisphere, we just hit him in the head.
9: Well, of course, Betelgeuse being Betelgeuse, used to be Alpha Orionis.
8: Back in the 1600s, when they first looked at this and put this on, yeah, it was the brightest one in the constellation.
9: So that's why it's still noted as Alpha Orionis, though it's not the brightest star
8: in Orion anymore. I have seen it much brighter than Rigel in my life. Big, and it just kind of expands and gets bright, and then it contracts and gets fainter, and it does it very irregularly. It's a star that's dying, it's... Like someone taking a labored breath and you're (sighs) not quite sure when this is going to happen. But there have been nights I've seen it much brighter than Rigel and then it would zip back to its normal brightness and a little bit fainter. But this time it's a lot fainter and I've never seen Beetlejuice this faint. And that's
10: kind of exciting. Of course, and if you go on the internet now or you go on Facebook, um, you are flooded with um, memes of uh, Beetlejuice uh, is Betelgeuse is dimming meaning it's imminently about to explode but of course that doesn't actually mean it's going to explode
8: it could if you're into the exciting part of that yeah Betelgeuse will become a supernova someday. It will explode. Some say it's already exploded. We're just waiting to see that light come to us. However, from a really rational scientific point of view, probably not. This is probably not some preemptive thing that's going to blow up next Tuesday at about 2. Now, stars like Betelgeuse often throw out a lot of dust and gas. And it, for lack of a better term, might have just... Burped burped up some stuff and is hiding behind a little shell of uh, some gas at this point.
10: A bit of carbon hanging around in the outer atmosphere.
8: Which could be cool because maybe it'll just stay kind of dim for years.
10: Yeah.
9: Of course, here in New Zealand, we don't have Orions. We don't even have scorpions. But we have a lot of gastronomy. And Orion in New Zealand is called the pot. And the pot is made by the three stars of the belt as the bottom of the pot. And also by the sword of Orion, which here is the handle of the pot, and
10: you can totally see a pot. In fact, you could almost say that Betelgeuse is like the the fire underneath the pot, and it's like (laughs) someone's just dialed down the thermostat a bit.
9: We could do that, yeah, Hmm. yeah.
8: You've taken the most recognizable constellation in the history of astronomy and turned it into a pot.
10: But that's New Zealand. Well, who doesn't use a pot?
8: Welcome to New Zealand. <laughs> and, you know, I, I can see the handle. All right. Yeah,
10: just, well, it's a little saucepan. Yeah. Maybe the design isn't great. But it actually looks like a pot. It right? does, actually. I mean, it totally doesn't look like a dude with a club.
8: I'm going to have a lot of trouble <laughs> explaining that back north because your pot's spilling everything all over the place. But uh, The Milky Way. they could be yeah. the story of the formation of the Milky Way.
7: <laughs> Star Safari.
10: Star Safari. Star Safari. Star Safari. Of course, getting into February, we're probably going to start losing our wonderful uh, couple of months where we've had to look at Pleiades, which is, um, which uh, you know, for us in this part of the world, rose in uh, June um, when we celebrated uh, Matariki. And over, over the last few months, of course, it's uh, been visible earlier and earlier in the night until um, now, where it's quite wonderful and quite high um, in the evening sky. But of course, in February, it's starting to duck a bit close to the horizon. So we're going to start mm. losing the sight of Pleiades as it gets um, into that unfavorable position where we won't see it again until about uh, June. So while you can see it in February, get out there and have a look. Yeah,
8: back north. Wow, we uh, see the Pleiades until about May when the sun enters into the constellation they set into the sunset. Yeah, that's interesting because it's just going to dip down below your horizon
10: well yeah. before that. just not in there. It's not too high in the sky. Right, it yeah. yeah. never really right. gets that high. So it's probably your best time is about, well, now really, isn't it? February, yeah.
9: March maybe, you stretch it. Star Safari. Safari. Star Safari Deep
7: Sky Adventures
8: In the universe
7: Deep Sky Deep Sky Adventures Star, Star Safari. Safari
9: Just because I really don't like the moon, like I do not like the moon, I cannot say how many times I've said I don't like the moon because it casts too much light and you can't see But are you the going to light
10: the February full moon?
9: Oh, I'm going to I'm going to say when the full moon is going to be in February, so don't go outside and observe. It's going to be on the 9th of February at 8:32 p.m.
10: Well, it's going to mess up, you know. So The
9: that's worst when,
8: time to look at the moon is when it's full. First of all, it's just way too bright. It's almost like the worst time to look at anything. Is at anything, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
9: We just do other stuff. We just yeah. dance or whatever. Um, the best <laughs> day in February to look at the star, so plan your uh, stellar activities around that, is on Monday, February the 24th, when there is the new moon. Kind of like first week of of the month will be full moon and um, last week of the month you will have new moon so then it's a good time to go and look and
10: at it. And actually the, the full moon makes well, it's an amazing amount of difference the moment it appears above the horizon. If you remember last month we were having a good observing session. We were looking at a bunch of stuff. And we're happy, right? We could actually see, you know, sculpted galaxy and some of the galaxies in the sculptor Mm. group um, pretty easily. Beautiful area. But you could see see the brightness of the moon on the horizon hadn't risen at that point. And it was was
9: was like light pollution from a neighboring city.
10: But (laughs) it was amazing because as soon as it appeared above the horizon gone. You couldn't see these faint galaxies. You still see Sculptor a little bit because it's such a bright yeah. galaxy, but the other ones are just gone and you no hope in seeing them. Um, so it's almost like someone t- turns off all the galaxies as soon as the moon appears.
9: So everybody, <laughs> be aware of the February full moon. As Samuel <laughs> called it. Yep. February full moon is going to happen on Sunday, February the 9th.
8: Mark your calendars.
9: Or not. (laughs) Do not come out of the house.
10: (laughs) Go and harvest your beetroot or whatever you do. (laughs) February, (laughs) with a full moon. February, full moon. Not
8: just for werewolves anymore.
7: Star Safari.
9: Here is summertime. So we are in the last uh, month of summer in February. So it would be the equivalent of August in the Northern Hemisphere, Mm -hmm. right? Right. So what would you normally do in August?
8: Perseid meteor shower. Oh, we don't
11: have
8: one. <laughs> <laughs> the dog days of summer.
9: <laughs> the dog days of the gone. Yeah. <laughs> Not in here.
10: We'll make the most of the last opportunity to go swimming, maybe. So anyway, the other cool thing that's that's happening in February, as we sort of mentioned before, is the Milky Way is getting higher and higher and higher. So that really neat part of the sky um, between um, the Southern Cross and Orion is in obviously a more favorable position to look at things which is awesome because there's lots and lots of things to look at that part of the sky the beautiful part about
8: being down here now is seeing the Magellanic Clouds. Mm. And the large Magellanic Cloud is coming up close to the meridian. The small one is heading over into the west a bit. But as we get into February, that small Magellanic Cloud is going to be getting a little bit lower, a little yes. tougher to see. Mm. But the large Magellanic Cloud and the tarantula, nebula, all that beautiful stuff will still be up nice and high and some of the best times to take a look at it if you're not out on the February full moon.
9: And, and well, actually, if you have a 3 filter
8: yep you
10: can see so much of the terrain
8: so now you want them to go out on February 9th to look at the
10: large Magellanic cloud. yeah that's well, a, it, here's the challenge yeah. <laughs> get out there in that February full moon that you know ancient February full moon And you know, if we can make sunglasses with O3 filters on them that'd be amazing <laughs> do you know if actually the, a couple of weeks ago we held out we held up a one and a Quarter inch O3 filter to your eye, like that, and you just scan the Milky Way, and Eta Carina Nebula was the brightest thing. In it so normally you look up there and you can see, you know, Alpha Centauri is really bright. So. But actually, with poking your eye through the O3 filter, it was Eta was the brightest thing. It's quite cool. So yes, you probably could make glasses with O3 filters be. I mean, we're rather expensive pair of glasses. We shouldn't
8: talk about this. This could be a really good product invention for you guys. So right. Patent pending. Yeah. Okay. Nobody listening to this. Patent pending.
10: <laughs> nobody. It's heard. already in 0 You yeah. haven't
9: heard anything.
10: It's <laughs> a <Yeah. laughs> copyright.
9: Peter is our Milky Way correspondent from the Northern Hemisphere. He talked to us many times about uh, events that happened there, like the eclipse, the solar eclipse. Now we have you here. Tell us how that eclipse was.
8: Oh, yeah. Oh, the eclipse was absolutely fantastic. It was the sixth total eclipse I've seen. I've traveled around the world to see these things. But this was the very first one I could actually take a telescope to. We could pile as much astronomical stuff in a Jeep that it could hold. There was barely room for passengers.
9: Oh, well, who needs passengers? <laughs> yeah,
8: who needs passengers? Who needs passengers? I'll tell you what, it was. <laughs> Imagine going to see a total eclipse and you can bring anything you want. That was the most fantastic part of all. And I decided to set up with two telescopes that were identical on the same mount, side by side. One had a camera and I could visually look through the other one. And that was just, i honestly, I didn't even really take a look at the pictures. I'm just kind of, yeah, there, yeah, here, yeah, here, okay. And just kind of moving things back and forth, but I got some good images as well. And it's always fun with friends. And I watched it out west, in the American West, and as it got dark and you hear people screaming and shouting from all the hills and countryside around and getting all excited, the sky turned really, really dark. And we heard wolves howling, (laughs) which was really kind of (laughs) neat. It wasn't people pretending to be wolves. You know what, maybe It wasn't a wolf moon (laughs) But it wasn't a full moon Right, not a wolf full moon It would have been a new moon So,
9: (laughs) I I do have the t-shirt, I still have it Oh good I'm bragging with it everywhere
10: What amazes me with the uh, people that image the eclipses is uh, how they can come up with some really fantastic images. But it's not something you get to practice that often. And that's what, you know, with me, it takes me a lot of practice to get a decent image. Um, So I don't know how good I would be at taking an image of the. You have an eclipse that lasts
8: two minutes. And two minutes goes by really, really fast. You've got to have your setting. You can't stuff it up and
10: go, oh, geez, I'll try this setting next time.
8: And a lot of people, (laughs) I would prefer to take an eclipse on land because I know the land's not going to move. But I've been on a lot of eclipses at sea where are on a cruise ship. And they practice the day before. And they stop the ship to show exactly how it's going to be. And you can look on your screen and you watch the sun go up. To the top pause, of the screen. and <laughs> come down. And then go up. And when it goes up, you got a few seconds right there. So you put that in the center of your frame. And then when the ship goes up, you know, like, click, 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 and it starts to go down. <laughs> and it starts to go click, 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 and you start moving it. It's really wild, so you don't get any uh, shakes to the thing. <laughs> but, yeah, there are all sorts of uh, ways to work that, and um, you yeah, hope for the best. Yeah. But I will say, with each eclipse, it's kind of like a faster version of Halley's Comet. Every mm. time Halley's Comet comes around every 76 years, we got better and better technology to view it. Better telescopes, instruments our eclipses are like that now our cameras are better and more portable and uh, we're now stacking images and learning how to do that and with the CCDs the images are much better than what the photographic film we used back in 1991 when I first started and cringe looking at some of those pictures but remember fondly what it looked like to the eye yeah
10: yeah, so the next one will even be. We call them
9: retro. We don't call them cringeworthy.
10: Yeah, <laughs> it's just amazing to get any image at all. But it's staggering to think the equipment people used. And in fact, you talk about Halley's Comet, and I, was, I remember the, the photograph of the Cook Telescope. It's the Carter Observatory that uh, took a picture of Halley's Comet back in, in 1910. Right, um, and it's it's. I mean, it's it's a great picture for 1910. You think, wow, it's just, in- just incredible how far the technology's come. But the camera, of course, isn't a nice, cool little one-and-a-quarter-inch high-speed um, you know, camera that can do 150 frames per second or more. It's a Great. big wooden box that you chuck a photographic plate in. You'd have to have a few of those and hope for the best. And Halley's Comet,
8: in 1986 was fantastic for you guys in the Southern Hemisphere.
9: <laughs> so we heard...
8: I saw it (laughs) I saw it from my broken old binoculars I'll tell you what I saw in the northern hemisphere and I knew what I was doing I knew where I was looking I was showing people like really and there was nothing really, there was this faint, tiny little splash. Went down to Aruba, off the coast of Venezuela, and was bright tail the
10: whole bit, just days later. Well, oh, I don't remember it being that big. I always remember back when I saw it, it was kind of small and stunted little thing. But of course, it depends when you look to it, right? Yeah. Yeah.
8: And of course, the next apparition... 2061. I'm ready. You ready? You ready? Yes. You, you guys are ready for? It? <laughs> yeah, I like, you can you know, hang around though. that I'm may not launch it, but you have to. <laughs> I've,
10: I've got all my equipment because I certainly not to afford any more until then. And again, the best
8: place to see it will be the southern hemisphere for that one. Of course. So you guys are in great shape <laughs> yeah, for that. So put that in your calendar for 2061.
9: It is done. A lot yep, of great done. podcasts Locked to
8: listen to before then. So you know, keep up with it. Prepare people to what to look for.
7: Star Safari Star Safari Star Safari Star Safari
9: Speaking about the sun, nothing happens on the sun.
10: Well, like actually... one tiny little... Well, it's been... The sun, of course, has been very exciting this month <laughs> with... Uh, was it AR2753, I think, the active region, which has now developed into a sunspot. Yeah. Uh, which is hugely exciting. Now, hopefully in February, there'll be some more exciting sunspots. But it's been, I think, the longest period without a sunspot for an enormous amount of years so far this year, which is... Uh, well, I mean, the sun's really in its minimum. And if, I think it's at peak minimum in April this year. And then it'll, uh, well, maybe it won't. Maybe maybe it'll stay minimum for longer than we think. For all of us who enjoy imaging with those solar telescopes we spend all that money on, we're really kind of waiting for Solar Max to come up in a few years. Oh, yeah. So. It'll be interesting to see how many Solar Maximums uh, solar telescopes last for Star Safari. Star Safari. Star Safari. Star Safari.
8: Star Safari. Star Safari. So let's talk about the
9: northern part of the sky and the things that are. Gemini? Yeah, Gemini. Mm. Gemini will be in the sky in February.
8: Gemini can't be up very long for you
10: guys. No, the two, Pollux and Castor, they stay pretty low.
9: But they're very beautiful, and you can actually see them in the sky. They're distinct. You
10: can even see them in polluted Wellington light pollution. Mm.
9: Mm. I always look for them from Cod Observatory. It's one of my favorite
8: things to look for, and Mm. I don't know why, but I've always looked for Gemini. Gemini is a beautiful constellation, and maybe it's because I'm a Gemini. I don't know, but I, I like it.
9: But are you a Gemini? (laughs)
8: <laughs> yeah,
11: well,
10: was that just invented in the 1920s about a British newspaper? <laughs> but it's a good story, right? Great, <laughs> great. And actually, and I think an area of the sky, which um which is actually quite fascinating, has a lot of stuff around it. Is that area around Canis uh, Major? Um, mm-hmm. And well, you know, from underneath Sirius, there, there's some really cool little clusters and objects. You've got the big. More famous ones like M50, M47, 46, and M93, all those open clusters. But there's some really cool. Other clusters, and in fact, under um, under Wizen, there is NGC-2362, which is an amazing little cluster that's got a really bright star in the middle of it, a really hot blue star, and that looks just amazing. Have you seen that cluster? That one, I have, yes, yeah, I have. Yeah, it's quite yeah. cool, yeah. Mm-hmm. And of course, not far from it is the cool little double 145 Canis Majoris. Um, that one I have to look for. The, well, I think we call it the Winter Albero. Albireo. Yeah.
9: Albireo. Albireo. Al-b- everybody says Albireo.
10: Let's just all agree we'll just call it El Burrito. El <laughs> Burrito. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to call it one for five, Panis Majoris, because that's easy to say. So, of course, that's a lovely double, which has that really contrasting color between the blue star and the, and the yellow star. It's really amazing <clears> to look at and that's a good the- separation obviously. Yeah, they are, they're quite they they're yeah. kind of close enough that they're clearly right. you know in, in the same family, but um Far enough apart, you can easily spot them, so you don't need um, you know perfect seeing. Um, but they look they look wonderful, and it's nice and bright too, and relatively easy to find. But not a lot, not seen by a lot of people because it's. Um, but it's really beautiful. Yeah, it's going to be on my list when I yeah. get some clearer skies. I'll definitely check that out. One of the things
8: I always check out when I come down to the Southern Hemisphere is Alpha Centauri. Oh yeah, because we're talking; it's our closest star, and I want to see both of them. The main star is a carbon copy of the Sun. The other one a bit orangier is out about where Uranus would be in our solar system. But looking at it with binoculars, no, you're just seeing one star. You really need a telescope and you're gonna need some magnification in order to split them up a bit. And that's that's kind of a cool thing to be able to see that split. But they are tight. They
10: are tight. And especially at the moment, because I think it's about a it's about a five arc second split between them at the moment. Yeah. Might even be a tiny bit less. So they have a 70-year rotation around each other. Um, So, of course, what we see here on Earth is that split getting wider and thinner. (laughs) Ah, okay, (laughs) gotcha. On on a a cycle, which is is kind of cool. Um, And, of course, when you see them, they both, to me, they always look like a pair of little yellow headlights on a car (laughs) off in the distance, with one headlight being a bit dimmer than the other one.
8: That's interesting. So maybe when I saw it before, they might have been a little bit uh, further apart. I don't know where they were in their orbit with that. Yeah, I can't remember what their maximum split is or not, but I know at the moment... But if they're far enough apart, they... uh, Binocular? Can you split them with binocs? No, I don't. Not even when they're at their farthest? No, I wouldn't. Yeah. Unless, Unless you're looking, know, at
10: looking at a super pair of binoculars. Well, it's yeah. if you've got, like, you know, a couple of eight-inch yeah. <laughs> really
9: reflectors. Abira is my favorite star in the Northern Hemisphere, and I saw it once through a telescope I remember from somewhere in Transylvania with a telescope I dragged there by myself. It was um, <laughs> quite an experience in the, in the middle of the mountains where the seeing was really, really good, and I still remember the blue and the orange hue that it had. It was just Beautiful,
8: beautiful. colors, and it's nestled in the middle. Way—it's—it's it's just gorgeous on a gorgeous. really gorgeous clear night without yeah. any moon. Boy, that's uh, thats spectacular. Yeah. Let me ask you guys this: Of course, you've seen the double Alpha Centauri many times. And yes. you've been able to split that last easily enough. And, yeah, yeah. and I needed a Barlow last night with an eight inch telescope in order to split it. But what I've never seen is Proxima Centauri.
9: No. It's nice. 11th magnitude. I, so it should yeah, be we sh- spot. We yeah. wanted to look at it.
8: Well, maybe we need to find it. It's the- That's the hard part. It's 11th magnitude, but we're talking a red dwarf starts closer than Alpha Centauri. But you can say, I just saw the closest star to the sun.
9: We want to. It's on our packet list.
8: But it's a matter of identifying it would be the hard part.
9: Well, maybe if you have a go-to telescope, you can.
8: Yeah. But I'm still thinking the field of view is going to be filled with
10: stars. You're going but to have to turn be able to identify. Well, 11 magnitudes, <laughs> not very. How tough can it be? A small, faint. Come room. on, Sam, you can <laughs> find I anything. Mean, this, basically, with that big telescope, you can see the birth of the universe, so we should be able to um, We should be able to find it. Here's the challenge let's identify Proxima next time. Well, and, and if we get bored with that one, we can always go and have a look at Acrox and split mm-hmm. that, because that's a bit closer than. Um, than Alpha Centauri. So, we want a bit more of a challenging one to push the good seeing. I could good,
9: good Just seeing. split the Alpha Centauri last night with a 16 inch telescope, and I don't know what eyepiece you had.
10: Oh, that was a huge eyepiece. I yeah. think it was 32mm or something. Yeah. I well, needed the 22 with a 2 Barlow for the <clears throat> 8. Yeah, you normally got to throw a double Barlow in it. Acrox is a bit harder. You've got to probably use a 9mm eyepiece and the Barlow uh, to split that one. But you can spot it, I mean, you can still see it, and you drive a bus through the gap. So it's pretty. Um,
9: no, this one was like really close together, but it was still beautiful. You it's quite loaded. Just to it. Yeah, yeah, it was mm. pretty. Bad. Of course, the,
10: the trick with these is mate, wait till they're out of the atmosphere But And you could spend a lot of time with the Southern Cross. Well,
9: if you can wait, because we had cloudy skies like
8: mm.
9: an hour and a half into the fun.
8: Mm-hmm. Yeah. But for February, it'll be up a little bit higher. Yeah we we'll get some clearer skies, right? If you're not out there during the February full moon. Hmm.
9: Oh yeah, that one. And you have the Unless jewel you have box an and the full
8: sack and <laughs> just really wonderful stuff.
9: We um, also looked at Omicron velorum. That sounds like Chancellor velorum. And that was very beautiful.
8: Tell me about that one because that's
10: one I'm not really familiar with and you guys rave about that. Well, I think it's really awesome. It's, in, it's kind of in the same type of open cluster like like Southern Pleiades. It it's big. You, you've got to move the field of view around a little bit to see all of it. Um, but it's just off the... Um, it's, it's on a,
9: the left-hand side of the cross. false cross, yeah.
10: And it's a nice big open cluster. There's not actually that many stars in it, but they're nice blue stars. They look really cool. And you can see it naked eye.
9: It's to the left mm. of Delta Velorum, That's Omicron Velorum cluster, and here it is.
8: But through your uh, telescope, you're talking, this is a really
10: pretty section of sky.
9: And then, of course, you have NGC 2516.
10: Or as it's known locally as the Sprinter, because uh, it looks like a person sprinting. And, and in it's fact, it's got a... um C. It's got a, gold, a gold-coloured star in it, which uh, kind of almost looks like the sprinter's wearing a bit of a medal, so they've done quite well. Gold medal. Mm-hmm. It's also known as the Southern Beehive because it's also it looks like a swarm of bees whizzing around. The Southern Beehive is <laughs> a really beautiful cluster, so there's a lot of stars in that, and there's, there's some colour variation and, and magnitude variation, so it's quite cool. And where there's actually another really cool cluster, um, a little bit towards um, Eticarina, And here is this cluster here, wishing well cluster, which is this. You put that in the eyepiece, and the whole eyepiece is just filled oh my goodness, with yeah. all of these stars, all of these bright stars that almost look about the same distance apart. The whole eyepiece is just like a big sea of stars. It's, yeah. it's a really beautiful cluster. That's a wonderful view through an eyepiece. It's eye like piece. people oh, trying
9: yeah. um, money in a, in a, in yeah, a well. Yeah, right. well, wishing
10: well, <laughs> well. You just picture all these <laughs> big, you know, I guess they come from the U.S. dollars, silver dollars, right? Sitting in the bottom of a... I think you guys need to
8: put a little uh, bucket there by the telescope. When they look at this, they can <laughs> just... Mm-hmm. Yeah, throw, throw donations. A, yeah,
10: all right, <laughs> copper 10 cent piece in there, please.
8: <laughs> hey, for February, let me ask you this 47 Tucani is going to be a little bit lower. Yeah, but sorry, Omega
10: Centauri is going to be a little bit higher. Yeah, well, if you start, so is that a good time to compare the two of them? It probably is actually because you probably want to start a bit later to get Omega Centauri up, They're kind of at opposite high. ends. Yeah, but you could compare the two. But
9: why should you compare them when 47 Tucani is the best? Like, we all know this, right? <laughs>
10: Well, I don't know. I mean, Omega Centauri may have a black hole, which I think is pretty cool. They're two very different
8: uh, <laughs> types of globular clusters, which makes a really an interesting yeah, comparison. One may have been a
10: galaxy. <laughs> well, and it's so great that in our sky we've got these two um, really impressive globular clusters. Actually, it's interesting. So 47 is, is always overshadows its very close next-door neighbor, right. in a small Magellanic cloud, mm-hmm. which in itself is a really impressive uh, globular cluster, NGC362. Huh. which is uh, which is actually quite big and quite bright as well and you can resolve the stars with good eyepiece you can resolve the stars to the centre. And I think it's a really impressive globular cluster.
8: The problem is... It's and overshadowed of
10: course by, by 47 Tucani. Yeah, it, yeah. it, it kind of reminds me of Gem Cluster near Edicarina, Carina, which is Gem Cluster is really beautiful, very tight little cluster of stars and it's kind of, I think, more beautiful than Box, but of course nobody ever looks at it because it's got this big giant behemoth next to it, Ede Carina, and all the excitement that's happening there so it, by the time people look at that they go oh, we're a bit bolder this area of space now we'll go somewhere else and they overlook poor little gem cluster which is a really lovely little cluster it sounds like you guys need to have a globular cluster night yeah well, we February. should in yeah.
9: February yeah we yeah. should yeah
10: Yeah. well actually the best time for globular clusters is when Scorpius is really high because you've got, and this, got an uh, M80 and M4 and yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm.
9: not for a long time we'll have to wait that's summer yeah Winter. Winter
8: <laughs> well, you just
9: have to come back then.
8: <laughs> That's your winter or summer.
9: The truth is, I don't think I have seen anything more spectacular than the center of the galaxy right up above the zenith. It's something that we're not used to in the Northern Hemisphere, and it's daunting. It is, wow.
10: Whereas in the Southern Hemisphere, that <laughs> right
8: again. The first time I saw that was in Africa, and it was at the zenith, mm. right at the zenith. Mm. And it was just mind blowing just to see the arms extending out, and you could see the bulge of the galaxy, and just Magellanic clouds that way, and Andromeda back the other way, and it's like, wow,
10: what you a perspective! See those, those dust lanes yeah. stand out something wicked, don't they? Just amazing,
8: just amazing.
7: Star Safari. Star Safari. Star Safari.
9: Right, where else is in the sky? So not, not too much action with the planets in the evening sky... Well,
10: well, what's interesting earlier in the month, I think on about third of February or around then sometime, Uranus is getting very up close and personal with the moon. But the moon will be about fifty percent, so it'll be a bit bright, so you won't spot it naked eye, obviously. We
9: did see Saturn a couple of months ago, didn't we? Yeah, the well, I did. The occultation was yeah. amazing. Mm.
10: Well, it's not doing one of those; it's just uh, doing a uh, fly past in the sky.
9: Oh, but because it's going to be so bright, this. what about the morning sky? Is anybody here morning owl? <laughs> A morning well, chicken. The,
7: well, the morning sky. <laughs> is it clear them up? <laughs> <laughs> morning rooster,
9: one of those that sing at seven o'clock in the morning. So we're well, yeah. talking I'm about asleep. some planets
10: in the morning. Well, right? yeah. So the morning sky is going to be great to see our old friend Mars that we haven't seen for quite some time um, as it pops up.
8: And you're um, starting to get Scorpius. Yeah.
10: Yeah. You know. So the, that centre of the galaxy is starting to appear, you know, early in the morning. Um, getting Still
8: kind of low, though.
10: Yeah. And then, of course, there's, uh, there's Saturn and, and Jupiter um, appearing on that side as well. So like That'll make pearls. a pre-line up. Hmm. And, o- and over the month, uh, Saturn and Jupiter um, change their position, and Mars just gets a bit higher. So getting ready to see Mars in winter, and of course, Mars has its um, opposition later in the year. In October. Hmm. Mm. That'll be wonderful. Yeah, that'll move fast enough. Yeah.
9: Mm. So, talking about Mars, Peter, you are the chief astronomer of the Mars Desert Research Station Observatory. Yes. How does that go? What, what What does
8: it even mean? Well, we've got a simulated Mars hab out in the Utah desert, and out there we've got all sorts of different activities for crew members to go out. It's a place where people go to learn how to live on Mars. And I've been out there and asked to build an observatory for them. We now have two of them. One is a solar observatory. And one, of course, takes a look at the nighttime sky. And it's robotic. So it's able to be used anywhere over the internet. Wow. So crew members can use it. And we have students using it and that sort of thing. And it's uh, a really phenomenal place under some very, very dark skies in the United States. Which actually looks like what Mars looks like in pictures. It does Indeed. And you're well aware because you've been out there. And uh, that's actually where we first met. Guilty as charged.
11: <laughs> I thought
9: it was the most amazing place. I it is ever a beautiful place, and, yeah. And, you know, like people have withdrawal symptoms when they come from Antarctica, everybody's like, I want to go back. And that's how I felt. And I will always feel about MDRS. It's the place where I just felt like at home in the middle of the desert, and I cannot explain. It's
8: my home away from home, too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah there's just something about the site, and uh, it's just beautiful.
9: And you know, all those stars, and when, when I was there, um, I remember Andromeda, and I remember the uh, double cluster from Persia.
8: And El, Biro. and El Biro. and wow. I'm sorry, El Burrito. El, El Burrito. Burrito. <laughs> <laughs> it's been of that That's better, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna make people hungry.
9: And I, the best thing ever in there, I remember I was once in the hub and I'm looking towards Phobos Peak, right? So Phobos Peak is, is the top of this mountain, mm-hmm. like a tiny little hill, a, a, a little bit further away from the hub. And I'm looking there and there is this rock on top of it. And it's called Phobos Peak, and I'm looking and I'm looking, and I think it took me like a week into the mission to actually realize that the rock on top of the hab looks like Phobos, Mars' moon. <coughs> <laughs>
11: it's
9: like, what of it does. Why else is it called Phobos Peak? <laughs> but that's a, its an amazing place. Why—why so why astronomy on Mars? Well,
8: I think astronomy is good on any planet, as far as that goes. It's something that we really want to take an interest in the sky. And Mars is a great place to do this. The nighttime sky is incredibly dark, and it's perfect for doing astronomy. We're a little closer to the asteroid belt. So checking on asteroids and their motions, making new discoveries there, would be really kind of cool. It would be really good for doing our basic research, which... Astronomers always love to do. But I think one of the big things would be working with parallax measurements with Earth. Mm. And parallax is a way for us to calculate distance. <clears throat> and what you want to do is you want to take a look at an object, let's say in December and in January, Jan- uh, December June of the year. And you take a look at the same star and you're using the entire Earth's orbit as a baseline and you can get this small angle. The angle you can calculate the distance. If you have that angle, you can calculate the distance. And the farther away it is, the smaller the angle. So you want the baseline as big as you can possibly get. Well, the biggest baseline we can get is the orbit of the Earth, if the star is at a good spot for seeing it in both December and in June. On Mars, we could actually have a baseline that extends all the way out to Mars from the Earth which would be phenomenal. And really give us a good heads up as far as distances out there. And you could do it at the same time. At the same time. So you wouldn't have to wait six months. Between. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. Using two identical telescopes, go out there and yeah. get your information right away. So those would be some really important things to do. And of course, <laughs> solar observatories for the sun mm. and just kind of making sure that we're not frying our astronauts up there with solar radiation and all the harmful stuff that comes from the sun. We definitely want to know when solar flares and all those things happen although right now i think they're pretty safe if they were up there doesn't seem to be a whole oh, lot yeah, happening yeah. on the sun these days but mars is a phenomenal place and a really good place to do astronomy you're not going to have any cloudy nights that's for sure
10: yeah <laughs> but well now, at, least, at least you have one it will glass. be a little cool though unless you have a dust storm the last time yeah
8: the dust storm <laughs> could be a problem you're right
9: <laughs> so the thing about mars is you can't actually put a telescope to your eye you were no. saying about this last night.
8: Yeah, you. Yeah, it's really difficult to look through a telescope on Mars because you don't want to take your helmet off. That's a really bad idea. <laughs> so everything's going to have to be remote, which means you get to sit comfortably inside the hab with your cup of coffee or tea, and right in the computer, just type things up and see your image come through. And yeah. that's the way it'll have to so be. So, of done. course,
10: it's what a lot of people don't realise. It's it's not the temperature and the lack of a breathable atmosphere that means it's bad to take your helmet off. It's the lack of pressure mm-hmm. because of the atmosphere is like like you said last night. It's at a hundred thousand. Basically, what it'd be like on Earth at a hundred thousand feet, which has been to which is incredibly, which nope. is incredibly high. Yeah, you know that's three times higher than uh, what the. Um, commercial airliners fly. What's right. the um, highest you've been? Well, the highest I've been is 40, 46,000 feet. Um, so that's not even halfway to how... And, and up at that height, you had And you to, had to wear a suit. Yeah, well, you, well you've got a... It was just a, it was in a small jet, so you had to be um, pressurised and on oxygen and stuff. And, you know, as the... You know, you look at the SR-71, the U-2, when they're flying at sort of 80,000 feet, 70,000 feet, they're basically in spacesuits. So when you're at 100,000 feet, which is even higher than that... Um, there's basically no air, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, the was... pressure, of course, is means things are going to boil at a very low temperature, right. including your skin and blood and everything, mm-hmm. um, and the inside of your eye. Not <laughs> so, nice. Yeah. So that, that, that I imagine would be the first thing if you decided to actually have a look at the telescope with your eye. Um, yeah, Don't. probably <laughs> not going to use your eye again.
8: <laughs> what we need to do is develop an observatory because we love to look through the telescope. That's that's a romantic part of it. That's such the beauty of it. You know, in science, we don't do that too much anymore, but that's the really fun part about going out to the star watches is looking and physically seeing this and well, getting sure your like mind you could and build heart a filled with that. Membrane around there. Well, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah. Can we build an observatory that has a type of pressurized membrane? Mm. But now you're looking through something else which is going to distort the image. No, no, like the, the membrane sealing the. So you had the telescope stick outside the dome, yeah. like the old yeah. cartoons, and yeah, just yeah. Uh, have a little membrane yeah. in there. Yeah, you just sort of move around. Must be a way to
9: do <laughs> it. Must be a way to
8: do it. <laughs> it's really going to be an interesting membrane for moving the scope around and following yeah. and tracking. That's. Uh, There's some really smart people
10: out there. That, that would be. Uh, <laughs>
9: Well, but until then, until we go to Mars, let's encourage our audience to go out and look at the night sky as much as they can. With your
10: own eyes, because you're not going to be able to do it on Mars.
9: Or binoculars. Right. Or telescopes.
10: Or just
8: your eyes.
9: Or just your eyes, just yeah. The yeah. yeah. But I mean,
8: just seeing the Earth from Mars would be the like
10: the most amazing thing.
9: Well, we're always watching um, Mars from Earth, right? Imagine <laughs> That's that <what> we do in real position.
10: Imagine spending all that time and effort like we do now trying to image Mars. And when people are on Mars, they'll spend all that time and effort trying to image Earth. Star Safari.
9: Another amazing thing that you do, Peter. You draw pictures of the night sky, mm-hmm. right? And th- these are deep sky objects that you're
8: i drawing. just started doing sketching. I've had the time now to do sketching and I love it. And you're
9: very talented, I must say. Oh,
8: thank you. Thank you. Well, I'm still learning and still growing with this. But what I love about sketching the most is I'm looking through the telescope mm. and I do everything with the scopes and I image and I do all this stuff constantly. But sometimes I image so much. I'm like, I really just want to look through the telescope again. I, I need to get back to that. And sketching really allows you to notice where the stars are located and and really allows you to take the entire scene in. And you look at it first and you think, what looks unusual about this? What's the thing I want to capture with this? And you, I has to really soak it in and take it in. And you start to see the little nuances and different shadings and things. And it's fun. It's really uh, well worth it. You get to know the object when you sketch
10: it.
9: Very, very well. What well, I did sketch the, um, what's that, galaxy...
10: Oh, Sculptor Galaxy.
9: I did sketch mm. Sculptor Galaxy a month ago. Mm. And I did it because I wanted to put it in my brain and remember where it was, so mm-hmm. when I'm looking for it or, you know. And it was the best thing ever because now I've got it on my uh, on my yeah. retina. Right. Yeah, right. And I remember when um, in 2003 when Mars was very close to Earth and the uh, very first time joined the Bucharest Astro Club, we, we went to this very dark place. And what we did, right... All night long in that place We drew Mars hmm. And I could see Syrtis Major Which is what we were talking about before How amazing that feature is on Mars But I also remember drawing the Dumbbell Nebula Right. So these two objects, it's uh, been amazing things. And drawing, indeed, it just puts things out there in your brain. So you can find them, remember them. But it's, it's, it's everybody's eye, right? So, like, it's drawing these things through your own hand, Right, it just makes it so so beautiful. It helps you to remember it. So you you just gifted us an amazing drawing of the Pleiades, which is I'm looking at it right now on our shelf, and it's absolutely gorgeous. And it is and it is an artistic representation. Oh, as I was saying, you're very talented. And you would think you know stars, but they're they're hard to draw,
10: especially nebula as well. Yeah, Mm.
9: but that is absolutely fantastic. We'll put a picture up online.
8: Mm. (laughs) you always say drawing, uh, making a straight line is difficult. Making a dot is difficult. Mm. A round dot. Mm. <laughs> That's not as easy as it sounds. Because mm.
10: you got to try and capture the magnitude and the color. Right, yeah. right.
8: And you have to have the positions correct. Oh yeah, yeah. So you start with something in the middle, and then you put another one in. Now have make a triangle, and you, mm. you work with triangles basically, mm. and try correct. to measure them off, and any, keep going. any tip for our um, listeners? Butting. I need for tips drawing, yeah, yeah, for, for drawing. drawing, yeah, mm. yeah. That I would start there. Um, you know, if you could go online to the Astronomical League, they have observing clubs. And I love their observing clubs because they have long lists of anything you would possibly ever want to observe. If you're into galaxies, they've got flat galaxies. They've got groups of galaxies, regular nebulas, just the best nebulas. And they have a nice list for you. But they also have a sketching club. Wow. And in the sketching club, you have to sketch, I believe it's 50 objects. And they have, here are the 50 you need to sketch. And it really is a nice way to get started and to learn how to do that. But yeah, to get started, you draw a circle. That's your eyepiece view. And I think of it as actually the numbers on a clock, 12, 1, 2, 3, going all the way around. And you move your eyepiece so that you have a star in the center. Because it's really easy to find the center. (laughs) And you kind of work it out there. Take the next bright star and from that point is out. The two o'clock is about a third of the way, two thirds of the way. You put the next bright one in. Once you have two, you can calculate the third one. Once you have those, keep working triangles to get the bright ones in. Then you work some of the fainter. You don't have to put every object in. That's not that critical or important. And keep in mind, this is for you. So as long as you enjoy it, what you're creating is really wonderful and it's something that you will remember. Mm. So just have fun with it. And there are lots of books that will teach about shading and doing all that kind of stuff too. But I would start with a star field, a simple star field to begin with. And you can get a lot of fun and satisfaction out of that.
10: You Pick a simple one like the Sagittarius Starfield.
8: (laughs) Yeah Omicron Valorum, Valorum. Stars, right? <laughs> There you yeah. go yeah.
9: So there are very many things out there that we can do Not just look at the stars but draw them Or just take in their beauty Because the night sky
8: is The important thing is you get out there and look And do it your way hmm. If you just like looking and you're scared to pick up a pencil today, That's fine, just look through the eyepiece But don't look in the eyepiece for two seconds And pull your head away and say what's next you have to soak it in. You have to really allow yourself to see what you're looking at and mm. try to find some of that. It's going to take
10: your eye a little time to adjust to see some, some of the fainter stuff. To, to make some, of it's that really, some of it's really subtle. And to see those subtle contrast differences. It's like when you you do a solar observing and people just, like you say, they go, and they look, ah, I can't see anything. We go, well, take your time. And then when they do take their time, suddenly they start seeing some of the granulation on the surface. And if there's Mm -hmm. like an active region, they can spot it out.
8: There is a prominence there.
10: Yeah. (laughs) But these things don't just leap out at you. They require you to take your time think about it look around the whole eyepiece use averted vision you know and get used to the subtle changes in contrast yeah. mm.
8: it's like the thing in hiking where they say well if you walk your own walk on mm. well, this you're going to mm. explore astronomy any way that you want to do it that's going to be fun for you you mm. start
9: your own stars
8: yeah there you go.
9: Wow, and with this amazing advice in mind, Haritina Mogoshanu.
8: Sam Lesky. Pete Deterline.
9: We wish you clear, clear skies. skies so that you can always see the stars and always remember that we are made from the same
7: stardust as they are.
10: And look out for the February full moon. It's going to be a bad one. And keep looking up.
7: Star Safari.
8: Star Safari.
7: Star Safari. Star Safari.
8: Star Safari. Star
1: Safari. Thanks for that, Heratina and Sam.
0: And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net,
1: Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast,
0: Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast,
1: YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast.
0: Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash
1: And don't forget that you can send us post. The address is on the website.
0: Thanks to Anna Smoller for the interview.
1: The editors were Joseph Vinitsky, Lizzie Lee and Michael Wright.
0: The producer was Michael Wright. Until next time, Jodon. Jod
1: on! on.